Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society and this podcast is part of that effort. Welcome to today's partner meeting where I chat with a few of my partners about the broader market, venture market, blockchain market, and share a business tip. One twist for this week is we're going to try something a little new. We're going to merge our prior interview format with our new partner meeting format. And so after we finish the partner meeting conversations, I will have my first interview guest on tagged onto the back of that. I hope you enjoy. Mike, what's up, man? I love seeing you with an interplay background. Dude, it's great. Yeah, it's a big improvement from last week's where I caught a lot of flack from some of the uh, some listeners last week about my uh, podcast from the closet. I heard five comments about it from people who listened. Yeah, so it's apparently cool, that was though, a thing. You know, isn't you know so we do this job from where we have to? That's right, digital life, man. Okay, what do you got for us this week? What's going on this week? I'm noticing a trend, uh, which is founders coming out with. One to two million of ARR looking to raise 10 to 15 million dollars series A's. And I think while that was sort of the norm last year, maybe even they were coming out with two raising 20 million dollars series A's. Uh, I think VCs are looking for founders to start the conversation with a little bit more of a reality around where pricing is and what's kind of best for the company long term. So if you got two million of ARR, let's call it, and you're slapping a 10x on that company. You're probably looking at like a 20 ish million dollar valuation. Now, I think that seems a bit low, especially for what might be like a really high growth company at that stage. So, what's, what should founders expect and what do I think they should do in this situation? I think they should raise five to seven and they should target something in the mid 20s pre with like the high end 30 post or so. So, they can right size their dilution, keep things somewhere around that 20% range, get these Series A investors interested in understanding that you really know where the market is, where pricing is and what people are looking for in today's world. And honestly, in my opinion, like set the company up for success by not overcapitalizing it too early. And most importantly, keeping optionality for founders as to where they can exit and sell this company in the next few years. I mean, the math's pretty simple. If you raise 15 or 20 or 10 on 50, 60, 70 million dollars, then for your investors, a good outcome is got to be a billion dollars plus. If you raise a Series A at 20, 30 million dollars, then a good outcome can be two, three, four hundred million dollars. And by the way, that is a good outcome. So I'd love to see founders have a little bit more realistic expectations around what a good outcome looks like and 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 thus set the, the bar at the right level when they're going out to raise that series A. This is a super awesome topic. Um, the high the high level piece I think is people just not necessarily recalibrating to the new market, which has already been largely recalibrated for the deals that are being done. So it's just people yeah. coming back into market and they haven't, it hasn't, they haven't grokked it yet. But I think there's beyond, beyond this moment in time, there's a really interesting lesson in this that I think a lot of people don't know unless they've been, unless they've been slogging through the venture job for a while. It's that the amount of capital you raise actually dictates your valuation. The general rule of thumb is the venture capital is going to buy 10 to 30% on average 20 of a round when the capital is invested. So if you raise more money, you're inherently raising the bar for the total valuation you're going to have in the company. And you're also saying, I have to sell for more at exit to be worthwhile for the investors. Totally. So it's not just an equation of, hey, can I get more money because more money in the company will be better? You're actually triggering a chain of events by raising a larger, a larger amount of capital that the capital will help you operationally, but this will affect your valuation, your ability to exit, a whole bunch of dynamics downstream 
that can screw up your payouts because yeah. you might have investors that don't want to sell for a deal that was a good deal because they're carrying at a higher valuation than they should have been. There's all these weird dynamics that come there in the back that I think are out of sight, uh, particularly for first-time founders, people who aren't living in this deal dynamic a lot. And it's that connective tissue between the amount you raise and the valuation that I think most people don't know. So that should be more transparent. 100%. I think incredibly well said. I think the other piece that people don't realize too is I think a lot of founders think that they are de-risking the business by raising more money. When in fact, I would argue that at the early stages here, you are in fact actually introducing more risk to the business by overcapitalizing and pushing the valuation up because you have less opportunity to raise a bridge round or, or side round or whatever it is, because people may look at you and say, whoa, your last round was at 80. I'm not, I'm not going to touch this thing here anymore. Versus if it was at 30 or 40, it was like, oh, okay, you know what? There's still quite enough wiggle room in there for me to get capital in and have the upside I want. I'm willing to take that risk. And uh, when you overcapitalize business, most founders end up spending it and you spend it on stupid stuff. And, you know, I, I know people like hear that story all the time. It is real and it happens every day. So when you stay nimble and you stay startup hungry and conservative with your capital, you are actually putting yourself in, in what I believe to be the best position to succeed. Yeah, it doesn't mean for folks they have to raise such a small amount they're putting the company in distress. It's not what you're saying. You're saying raise no. the right amount of capital to run the company in a healthy way, but don't have that chain reaction impact of creating an outsized valuation that you can't grow into. Yeah, and I, I, I often say to founders, I'm like, what would what would you be able to do with 15 that you can't do with seven? And and the answer is you end up there's no way to physically spend the money faster unless you're spending it on things that you have not vetted as really strong places to allocate capital. So for me, you end up just blowing it. That ends up coming out of your equity at the end of the day when when the valuation is too high and you have to recap the company, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it's just like take in the seven, spend it really. Like, like go spend it the way you want to spend it and make sure the capital gets allocated correctly. And then if it's going well, believe me, the capital markets will be there to put more money in the business, especially if you raise it the right valuation, because then more investors will be like, great, your last night was at 30. I'll give you that 50 or 60 now because you've proven out these proof points. And you know what? You're right. Maybe you are ready for 20 million bucks now because you've shown me you know how to spend seven. Tell me how you're going to spend the 20. Okay, that makes sense. Let's go spend the 20. So I think it's just, again, back to that chain reaction. You set yourself up for failure on day one when you overcapitalize a company for so many reasons. This is a great topic. Thank you, Mike. Cool. My pleasure. Thank you. Chris, what's happening in the markets? What's up, MPD? Um, it's been a few very constructive weeks uh, for the U.S. economy. And I don't mean that everything's great. Certainly not true with the tech earnings that we received two weeks ago. But... The way I see it, I think things are on the proper path to recovery and the mm. labor market is showing real resilience despite higher interest rates. So basically for the first time since pretty much the start of this year, you know, good news is good news again. Um, and just to support that statement, happy to dive into a little bit of the domestic data and events that happened last week. Um, the first one would be non-farm non payroll that just came out this, this morning for the month of October. The headline number came in at 261K. So out of which private sector added about 233K of jobs. Hourly earnings also increased by 0.4% month on month, on month beating expectation. And the risky asset market 
people took that as a sign of a potential soft landing. And um, S and P's in the green, at least uh, last time I checked, a few minutes ago, about one by by, by about one point two percent. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's been but a great wasn't week the story in data. Here wasn't the story that. Hey, look, you know, the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates to combat inflation yes. until they see unemployment go up. We need people to, they actually were trying to get people to lose their jobs, right? As horrible as that sounds. Sort of, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, now you're saying, hey, uh, unemployment is, you know, employment's remaining strong. Yes. As the interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the Fed just is going to keep ratcheting the interest rates or is it at a level where, you know, maybe we can have our cake and eat it too, where we're going to have higher interest rates, lower inflation, and not screw yeah. up people's jobs and livelihood. Great question. So up until this point, the reason why market, one of the reasons why market has been so volatile is that people think the Fed is hiking at an unprecedented uh, increments. So 75 basis point, 100 basis point at a time, which will sort of trigger a downfall in the market um, in a drastic way and will put us in a recession, et cetera. But if the labor market is so resilient as the Fed does this, and Chairman Powell just indicated in the last FOMC meeting happened last week that the pace of the hike will slow down, there is a scenario, scenario where wage will, unemployment will go up, wage will go down, but in a slower than anticipated fashion which will then result in a softer landing. That's the, that's the term that people use. That means that, yes, people will lose their jobs, wage will go down, inflation will be down, but uh, everything will happen in a slower fashion so that we don't find ourselves in a spot where everybody loses their jobs and, 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 and market crashes by 30, 40%. So that's the, probably the best scenario we can hope for. And given what we've seen so far, there's the likelihood of that happening is, is increasing which is great news for all of us, really. That's great. I, I'm hearing from somebody there's some rumblings that there may be a bigger problem coming through the market. Uh, I was talking to a buddy yesterday in the private equity space, and he's saying, look, the problem is no one knows where interest rates are going. And as a result, mm-hmm. the big banks like aren't lending money, right? It's all locking up because there's just so much uncertainty. I don't know if it was a little hyperbole used in, in the language here, but that has a lot of implications for people's ability to do business, buy companies, transact. You know, it, it creates yeah. a, a bit of a freeze. Um, I personally don't think the banks are afraid to lend out money because what happens uh, in the lending market is usually these banks use uh, interest rate swaps, interest rate swaps to get rid of their interest rate exposure, meaning. They can actually lend out rates in floating or fixed rate format. So if they lend out everything in floating, that means as 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 the Fed raises rates, their interest rate will also go higher, uh, sort of in in accordance with markets. So that doesn't necessarily impact their balance sheet and their their interest rate margins much. So I don't think the banks are necessarily afraid of lending money. What is definitely true is if they do that, that means as the Fed goes uh, raises rates, the Cost of debt will obviously rise for all the borrowers in the market. Yeah. It means the cost of capital will go up, and um, as a result, the 
the the cash your cash flow free cash flow will go down in in, in corporations and your earnings will go down therefore your values will go down so yep that's that's sort of the sequence of effect that will happen okay what else you got internationally so we've sort of covered everything domestically and on an international stage there are two things that i think are of course beyond the you know your usual or ukraine your russia war uh which um Good and bad. I haven't seen a, a, a ton of real news and development there. But away from from that, we also had uh, China's National Congress um, that was over last week. Um, those of you who are following, we sort of also talked about this in our last pod. Um, uh, market basically took a twenty percent dive after Xi Jinping consolidated his power. There uh, after that, there's you know. Markets were sort of in, in, in Asia were sort of on a recovery path because there are some rumors, unconfirmed, that um, there will be easings in the COVID zero policy. Uh, previously expected it may be Q2, Q3 next, next year, now potentially Q1. So that's great. But Taiwan, of course, remains a major geopolitical tension point. Um, uh, if anything, you know, that we got out of that meeting, the National Congress, is that China stays very firm in, uh, um, in its in its determination to take, to take over Taiwan, certainly not ruling out you know military occupation. Um, and whether that triggers into a proxy war with, with the US when that happens is anyone's guess. So um, definitely need to look 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 at that and 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 focus on what could, what, could, what could happen in the next two years. Away from China, we have um, the Brazilian election. We talked about this also in the previous pod. Um, Lula won over the incumbent Bolsonaro and the transfer of power has started. So far, it's been actually surprisingly peaceful. Uh, and that's great news for, for markets, but there's been very little resilient, very little resistance. Um, none, uh, none of the sort of rhetorics that, that, that Bolsonaro, uh, talked about previously in terms of Either uh, win the election or go to jail or die. None of that has happened yet, which is good news. So we'll see uh, whether the transfer power is completed. And if so, at least one uncertainty is out of the picture. Uh, and that's definitely positive for markets. It's a big deal bringing it back to the private markets, too. I mean, we're always, yes. you're, you're, you're talking largely public when you talk about this stuff, but the extent to which we can reduce these exogenous factors. Helps reduce yes. the the risk of an overcorrection in the yep. tech markets, in particular. Right, prices are already down, mm -hmm. valuations are down, things are contracting, but there is a risk that it could overcorrect beyond probably what it should if there's just yeah. chaos floating around. Absolutely, uh, the less so, uncertainties there are, the you know, the more people can actually focus on the fundamentals of the business instead of the macro environment. Hundred percent agree. Wild times. Thank you, Chris. And for those listening, just a quick reminder, Chris is an SEC registered RIA, so nothing he said should be construed or perceived as financial advice, yada, yada, yada. All right, Brett, what's happening in the blockchain universe? Yeah, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, Reddit launched an NFT project, uh, which was basically a bunch of avatars uh, that that Reddit users could could purchase and use uh, as their profile pictures. Uh, 
that was interesting in and of itself. It actually, I think it onboarded about 3 million new wallets. Um, but it's an interesting segue into uh, another topic, which is Web 2.5, which is something that we're interested in. Um, it's a Web 2 interface, which is very nice and sleek uh, and similar to what we, we use nowadays with a Web 3 backend, right? So you get a wallet, somebody else manages your keys on the back end, they store NFTs, whatever. Um, on your behalf, and it removes that friction of people needing to sign up for a wallet, manage their keys, which can be a, a pretty daunting process. So this Reddit experiment was uh, a, a testament to that. Now, uh, one thing is, even though it signed up 3 million wallets, only about 300 uh, avatars were purchased uh, two days ago. So what does this show to me? Um, this shows that People are interested in the technology, um, but there needs to be a, a better answer to, okay, what do I do with this now that I have it, right. right? So for me, NFTs are much more than profile pictures or even art, uh, even though there is a very interesting art segment uh, in the NFT world, it needs to be more than that. And people are working on this, making NFTs more expressive, generative, dynamic, you know, once you, when you do certain things, it evolves, they're, they're used to store items. Um, so, you know, one of the things I worry about, and, and I think the, the industry at large needs to focus on is not NFTs as images, but NFTs as a piece of technology, digital files that uh, live on the blockchain. And that in and of itself is really, really interesting. Our medical data is going to be represented, represented as NFTs. So they're going to be very important objects. Um, so, and, and people are working on the utility of NFTs, but, um, again, it was a very, very good experiment, a very good validation of the thesis that web 2.5 is going to be, uh, enabling a whole new cohort of people into the space. Now, whether or not the world calls you continues to use the phrase web 2.5 months or years from now, doesn't matter to me. What I'm happy to hear is this broad acknowledgement about the user interface and the experience of this market, because it's never going to be commercially viable or widely adopted, at least on the consumer side, until there's an easy interface. You don't need to be a, an engineer or a self-taught coder to be able to transact with this stuff. So uh, just the idea that that's becoming a universal mindset, hey, we need to make consumable applications, an application layer, that's gold, because this will go from being back-end to front end. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, and web two, you know, to me, it's not really a war between web two and web three. Uh, web three is just hopefully a generalized settlement rail for, you know, all these different applications. So it allows, uh, you know, all different sorts of data, which basically everything nowadays is data, right? You know, my medical data is the same type of data as my financial data, just a bunch of bytes. Uh, so now those can all interoperate on the same rails and, it reduces the trust requirements uh, for transacting across different databases. So, um, you know, it's Web 2.0. Web 2 has figured out, uh, you know, very, very good user interface interfaces, whereas Web 3 has not. So it's, it's nice to see, uh, you know, the Web 2 people and people very focused on, you know, the user experience and UI, UXs, uh, you know, making a transition in the space and uh, making things more familiar with, for people. 
Uh, is there someone who coined the 2.5 jargon? I don't know. Uh, I, I heard it a while back and it made sense to me. I actually heard of it first as sort of a derogatory term, uh, you know, something that was non-committal to whether, you know, to either web two or web three. So it was sort of, mm. uh, not good at anything, just like, uh, half good at both uh, two things that they seemed that, that seemed incompatible with each other. Um, but, but to me, it, it makes sense. Uh, you know, the, there's already these very large communities of people in web two, uh, you know, why not, uh, test these out with, with those people already, uh, you know, uh, aggregated together. So, um, I, I think that's, that's how a lot of people are going to get either, either get integrated purely, uh, directly into the space or, uh, are going to get curious enough to sign up for a wallet and, and start trading. Very cool. Thank you, Brett, as always. Anytime. All right, Fong, what do we have this week? So this week, we're going to be talking about pricing strategies. Um, This is a topic that I don't think a lot of founders spend enough time thinking about, um, and it could really set the stage for everything for your company, from how your product is perceived in the market to even the financial viability of your company, right? So if you charge too much, you won't have any customers. If you charge too little, you'll impact your profitability, and it actually might work against you because customers might undervalue your product. So it's really worth spending a lot of time thinking about this. Um, to start off, let's just establish the basics, how, how you can approach pricing. There are three ways. The first is cost-based pricing. So that's basically taking the cost of how much it takes to make your product and applying a markup. Now, I really hate this strategy because it doesn't take the customer into account, right? Your cost is based on your team's efficiency, your negotiating power, your scale, and a bunch of other things that your customers just don't care about. They only care about what it's worth to them. Um, Second way is position-based. So this is looking at the competitive landscape and figuring out where you want to be relative to your competitors. Do you want to be the lowest cost provider? Do you want to be the super premium brand? Um, this strategy I find is really common with consumer brands where there are often a lot of players within the same product category. Uh, last, the last way is value-based pricing. So this is based on how customers perceive the value of your product. So the bigger the difference between that perception and the price, the more likely they are to buy your product. This really requires you to understand your customer what they need, and how your product fulfills them, which are all things you need to know anyway. Um, So regardless of what strategy you end up using, I just wanted to cover um, a a number of common mistakes that you should be avoiding in terms of thinking about your pricing strategy. Um, Number one is not testing enough price points. So there's always going to be a trade-off between price point and your sales volume, and you'll never find that optimal point unless you're testing a range of options. Number two, uh, mistake not to make is overcomplicating pricing. So just keep it simple and straightforward, right? For B2B companies, make it easy for your customers to estimate their monthly costs and calculate ROI. Don't surprise them with hidden costs. For consumer, pro- for consumer companies, don't make your customers do complicated math. Uh, don't try to confuse them. It just doesn't work. Um, And then last mistake uh, that you should avoid is not considering psychological pricing, which is which are different ways of presenting pricing that subconsciously drive purchasing behavior. 
I think some of these you've heard of, some of them, some of these might be new. Um, but for example, if you're trying to convey that your product is a good deal and the price point in an odd number, because odd numbers tend to feel cheaper in the customer's mind, and then kind of and use the charm pricing strategy. This is the one I think we all know. It's the 99 cents thing, right? $4.99 is basically $5, but it sounds a lot cheaper. Um, conversely, if you're trying to convey that your product is aspirational or, or luxury, stick to whole numbers and the price with an even number and lose it at the decimals. There was actually a study that was done on champagne that customers were more likely to buy it if it was priced at $40 versus $39.75, even though $39.75 is technically cheaper. Um, and then last tactic uh, is that customers are drawn towards the center. So when you're presenting pricing bu bundles, put the option that you're trying to drive customers to in the middle. So it all seems really simple. And, and, and uh, there are a lot of other psychological tactics, too. Um, it's worth spending some time researching because they're all really interesting. I love this topic. Um, I think um, there's an interesting dynamic here where all of the pricing strategies and mechanisms you came up with are ways in which people triangulate their pricing. And a lot of people, I think, will actually pick one of those and run with it. That's yeah. not what I do. I use it to kind of get context. And then I do the thing you mentioned at the end is trying pricing, but specifically I start by pricing as high as possible in a very manual way. This is what I always tell entrepreneurs to do, like go out, overcharge what you think at pos highest possible price you could do, but do it manual where you're talking to people and then discount down to find that price for every single deal until you find the pattern. And that's, right. Very important to do early because, man, if you, you, you go five, six years of building a company and turns out you could have been charging 30% more the entire time, it's a big difference in the financial outcome of the company. So you want to find this out early, aggressively and early. And I have, uh, my experience, most people are very uncomfortable with that process of charging too much and whittling down. Um, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. You might lose early customers but it is the most efficient way to find the actual market price you want to go with long-term. Yeah. I think a lot, I, I didn't cover this, but a lot, another mistake that a lot of customers make, a lot of um, companies make is that they charge too little, right? They go out and they're trying to undercut their competitors and then, you know, their product looks maybe not as great as the other competitors and they're not making you know as much money. Um, and there's a whole brand perception that is lost as well as leaving a lot of money on the table. And I also think, yeah, regardless, I think the competitive aspect is, is, is really important, regardless of what, how you come at your pricing. You always need to know what's going on on the landscape, how you compare to your competitors. And you always, always have to reassess it because there are always new competitor, competitors coming online. The marketplace is always changing. So really kind of keeping track of that and making sure that you're, you're price optimized at whatever price point you're at. I love it. Super important topic. Hopefully this is helpful to folks. Thank you, Fong. Thank you. All right, awesome. That concludes our partner meeting portion of the segment for today. We now have a guest on. I mentioned earlier in the show, we're going to tag a guest on uh, to the end of this conversation. So with that, I would like to welcome Alon Moore, the founder and CEO of Ask AI. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Yeah, let's start off. You want to give us a little bit of an overview of Ask AI? Sure. So Ask AI is trying to, to bring the Google or Google Answers into the enterprise 
we help uh, productivity and customer experience by bringing all the many silos of the organization into one search bar and then providing direct answer. You know, a little bit like Google answers. If you ask who's the president of the USA, Google just, just doesn't give you any link to a document, read it and find yourself. It brings you the direct answer to that question. Same kind of technology we're trying to bring in into organizations so that they get direct answers for customer support, for product, for sales, for R&D, et cetera, and then helping build the organizational knowledge as well. So in the, the tool is a search bar, but it's, allow, it's on the back end, it's indexing all of the information in the company across all of the... Yeah, and the big breakthrough is it also works with unstructured text. So today, Slack became, became very, very popular. And we all know there's a lot of questions going on on Slack that's not really documented anywhere, and organizations don't really utilize that. And then questions repeat themselves over Slack. So we're trying to stop that kind of uh, repeating questions. What we do is we index all the Slack channels, for instance, customer communications, knowledge bills, health center, bring them all into one search bar so that if you have a question that was answered by someone over Slack, you can now use that answer. And it becomes essentially your org becomes your knowledge base. Right. So it becomes less repetitive and more accessible. Uh, now you're building the company out in Tel Aviv. How is building in Israel? It's actually very exciting. Um, Israel is becoming a powerhouse for startups for some time now. And uh, we, I'm, I'm very uh, happy now that now in this uh, time around uh, in the startup because I, I'm a second timer. My previous startup was in 2009. Back then, uh, Israel didn't have a very big ecosystem of companies that reached 1,000 or 10,000 employees. So we were forced to go to the Silicon Valley and start by having first design partners there. Nowadays, Israel has a lot of uh, many unicorns that can be helpful in trying out new technology. So some of our early design partners like Yotpo, WalkMe, Monday.com, Aramis, they're all were very helpful and they're very close to us locally. So nowadays it, it becomes like an ecosystem that you can try out ideas first in Israel and then very fast come out uh, out of the Israeli ecosystem. Yeah, when I started in VC in 2006, the name of the game for Israeli startups was the management teams would move to the US, the Valley, New York, wherever. They leave R&D abroad and they would run this kind of international company. That was the, the format that we kept seeing. Is that still, now that you have a kind of critical mass and density in the organization, you know, locally in Israel, is that still part of the game or are you seeing fewer founders move to the US? Well, I think right now that's the case. Uh, I know that founders uh, still stay with their company here in Israel. I know that they moved to the US usually uh, with the sales team. So sales mm. success are typically still built uh, uh, under USO, but uh, the management of companies and the founders themselves right now typically do stay in Tel Aviv. And yeah, you know, it's, a like a, it's like a global village right now. So uh, you, can, you can even sell over Zoom. So that's, that's a very big game changer. Like in my past startup, we had to, to really go to New York or the Silicon Valley to sell in person. 
And today, you know, the CEO can still stay here. So as an Israeli founder, you know, look, there's a thriving ecosystem of VCs out in Israel. How can U.S. VCs be providing material support? What matters? So I think the, the best value, and uh, that's why we, out, we actually outreach to a few U.S. VCs, is the U.S. market. Israeli market uh, is still, you know, a fraction of, of the U.S. market. And Israeli startups really want to succeed in the U.S. because every breakthrough technology that you're trying to use, if you make it in the U.S., then you'll probably make it in the rest of the world. And U.S. VCs are really helping that by introducing to portfolio that they have in the USA or introducing to founders from their portfolio. So that's for us a very big value add that Israelis VCs can't really provide. I appreciate that. All right. So you, uh, you did, went back and did your PhD in machine learning after you sold your last company. What are the big opportunities that you think about when you're looking at kind of playing in the AI ML space? What are we, where's the future? So that's, that's actually the reason I went to do a PhD. I was uh, at Salesforce when we were sold, I was chief data scientist there. And I, 2015, I was looking for my next Next big thing, I saw uh, a big change and a big breakthrough in, in a field called deep learning, but mainly for vision or image processing. But NLP, natural language processing, was still early in deep learning. I met a professor, Jonathan Barron, that was just coming ba back from uh, Stanford to, to be a professor in Tel Aviv University and started doing a PhD by understanding that there's going to be a very big potential. We were lucky enough to see that unfold. And nowadays, uh, we're all aware of GPT-3 and uh, companies like OpenAI that are showing very promising breakthroughs. One of the big things that happen in deep learning and NLP is instead of becoming like an anecdote, uh, deep learning is really impacting how we work with heavy text. So now you can take you can take very long documents and summarize them in one sentence with very high accuracy, more than 90% accuracy. You can take natural language questions and take a document and pinpoint the exact answer with very high precision, as opposed to, you know, just a few years ago that that was just not possible. There's many things we can do now with heavy text that was just not possible two or three years ago. So I think we're going to see more and more companies making use of that and trying to introduce that breakthrough to industry. Because after all, what we have in our enterprise is mostly a lot of text. Our, all our customer communications, all our knowledge, all our notes, all our documentation, everything is text. Even the calls we do with customers can be transcripts can be converted into uh, call transcripts. So if we can make sense of that, create insights out of that and find good answers, then that can really break through how we, how we use everything and how we work in our workplace. So the computers in these situations are summarizing the copy, the text that it's getting. Are there other permutations of how you see the AI playing in the tech space? Is summarizing the key yeah. output. 
So one thing is sentiment analysis that's improving dramatically. Now we can recognize nuances on was a customer unhappy on a call, not by just saying words that are negative, by the fact that some nuances in how he says things changed or his patient dropped. We can now analyze, uh, you know, turns in a customer communications. Is, is, is the customer talking too less? Is the salesperson talking too much? Mm-hmm. Now, we can, we can really analyze a lot of nuances. For instance, in customer tickets, we can now distinguish between questions, product issues, repeating tasks. This kind of classification is something that NLP helps us do. So there's many, many kind of practical tasks that modern NLP enables us that are really business goals and really helping the business. All right. I love that. Before we sign off, I want to throw you an underhand pitch here. One question. It's your second startup. Any advice for first-time founders? What did you do differently this time that you were very conscious of? Hmm. That's a, that's a great question. Well, one big thing is taking funding because in 2009, we had to bootstrap. So for me, this is a very different game. Uh, I think, but the, the big advice is if you do take funding, and my first startup was in 2009, be cautious as to what evaluation and what you take and do you really need it or not. And I think this time around, I was, I was cautious and learning the lessons from, from last time. And it proved to be valuable. Even though we were offered more for a bigger valuation, we, we, we are, I think we made a smart decision of, but by moving slower and, and really seeing how the product evolved and how we can sell and how we can really build, build value and revenue before jumping to, to be very big valuation. I think that kind of advice now seems obvious with current market, but it happened a year ago and we're happy that that's, that's what we did. Yeah. Most entrepreneurs do not under fully get that. Uh, it's, it's a challenging thing. And I think people at their core, they just think they're de-risking the business by raising more capital, um, at higher valuations and owning more. They aren't realizing that it's going to come out of their pocket in most cases. And influence the sentiment of the company as well. Oh, totally. Yes. People start paving over the cracks and spending money on crazy stuff. You want to be always growing. You don't want to go like this. And then, so that's very shaky. Thank you for the time. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the partner meeting. Uh, if you have any feedback on the inclusion of a guest at the end, hit me up. You can get me on Twitter at MPD. 